Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of the Whiskey Ring Podcast. Today we are talking about something quite new in the uh, world of American whiskey and whiskey in general. We're talking to Chase Langdon, Devin Urshow. Is that right? Urshow. Urshow. Okay. It was one or the other, and I always go the other 50%. Um, from American Mash and Grain, uh, also recently putting out our page. American whiskey, which we will definitely be talking about a bit. So, Chase, Devin, welcome. Thank you very much. Appreciate it, David. So, uh, Devin, as I was saying to Chase before you came on, I had to kind of radically redo the outline I had for this episode um, because I listen, I listen to other episodes and read interviews and such before uh, doing these. And you were just on with uh, my friend John over at Embellish Pod. And uh, he asked a lot of the questions that I had on my list. So I had to come up with some some new ones, some new angles to take. Um, thankfully, uh, Devin, when you were on with Alan uh, Bishop, uh, it wasn't as many questions that I had. So <laughs> those that'll stand alone. But um, this it, it's all good. It all works out in the end. So um, instead of starting with, um, with Barra Page, uh, I want to instead start with American Mash and Grain. You know, really the the platform, the uh, website, and, um, uh, you know, most importantly, you know, let's just start with how did that come about with the two of you? Well, it really starts a very long time ago uh, in kindergarten in Princeton, New Jersey, where a young Chase and a young Devin got into a squabble over the place in line to go out to recess um and we were subsequently benched which at our school was the punishment for doing bad things which meant that we had to sit on a bench that faced the playground so that we could look at the other kids playing while we sat next to the teachers uh Mm. fortuitously though we got to actually talk to each other on the bench and became good friends and 25 plus years later i won't give anybody the specific year but uh 25 plus years later here we are still best friends and um a lot of what american mash and grain started off with was um you know we was the middle of the pandemic i was sort of working on the outskirts of whiskey um in part-time roles for a couple different craft distilleries i wanted to get more involved with whiskey i wasn't sure how to do that and it was Chase that sort of came up with the original concept. So I'll let him uh, take over for me there. Yeah, I mean, so the idea was, you know, Devin talked about his motive, right? Motivation was was to to kind of figure out how to go further down this rabbit hole of whiskey. Um, that was not really my intent at the beginning. I was really just looking for, you know, in the midst of COVID when we're so isolated and we couldn't go see people or do anything, find a way to, to reconnect and, and invest some time um, with with my friends and, and so i kind of came up with this concept was like well what if we we started this kind of holistic storytelling platform you know a, a blog website um that focused specifically on the craft movement where devin had you know some connections and you know it was really just kind of this interesting developing space um he could bring his whiskey knowledge i work in brand marketing storytelling and sales and so i could bring that piece in and, and, and really um you know it served a lot of purposes, right? He, he can kind of further develop his professional network in, in whiskey. And I, I would have a chance really just to drink whiskey and, and get on a Zoom call, you know, every couple of weeks with a buddy of mine who, who I hadn't seen in a while. So, you know, that was really kind of the origin. 
uh, of American mushroom green. Gotcha. And um, before I forget, Devin, one of the craft distillers you worked at was Kings County, correct? Yeah. Uh, at the time, I was working as a tour guide for them. I did go on to eventually become the tour and events manager there for a brief period of time, and I helped them bring tours back during the pandemic um, in a COVID-safe way. Um, and I am operating now as an executive bourbon steward for them, so doing specialty tastings and events. Um, but yeah, that's where I was working at the time. There's no, so just to confirm, there's no more that Oded bourbon available, right? I wish there was. Uh, the Oded bourbon has been a, a piece of sort of Kings County distillery lore, both outside and within the distillery. Uh, mm -hmm. It went on sale last week, and I think it went, it sold out very quickly. Mm -hmm. But I've also heard amazing things about the seven-year-old bottled and bond offerings that they put out there. Uh, which I'm very sad to have not gotten my hands on. So um, anybody who's out there, Kings County Distillery in Brooklyn, really cool stuff and putting out some really interesting older age statement whiskeys now, which is a lot of fun. I, I mentioned and bring it up only because, uh, well, two reasons. One, I, I'm fascinated with any kind of New York City distilling and Kings County in particular has just, uh, as I say in the podcast a lot, just seeded so many other places across distilling and marketing and retail and all basically every area. Um, but the other reason was that Oded bourbon because uh, I was there in August of 2018 um, for my uh, bachelor week, part of my bachelor weekend. And I got a bottle of uh, the Oded whiskey um, that I think was a hundred percent oats. Um, it was a one-off thing as a lot of things there are. And it was one of my favorite things. I nursed that 375 for much longer than it should have lasted. Um, so when it finally, when the Oded bourbon came out, I was like, oh, I want to go. But it was also, I had landed from um, a trip in Kentucky and Tennessee for a week. I had landed the night before at like midnight, gone home at midnight. And I was like, I can't, I just can't. <laughs> so <laughs> I was sad to miss it. I hope someone I know will find me a taster, an ounce or two, but uh I was glad to see, of course, that it sold out. Um, anyway, getting back to you guys, to American Mash and Grain. Um, your so the the website is what I think of as pretty. Um, you know, it's unique. It's well thought out. Um, I think we use the same um, builder for it too. So because I noticed something that were similar, so it, which is great for me. It's easy navigation. <laughs> Um, we, we can offline about the the, the difficulties, yes. <laughs> the weird nuances of that that website platform. Yes, a little customization <laughs> is necessary sometimes. Um, but uh, what I'm really curious about is, uh, as you both said, you're you went into it with this idea of storytelling. Um, and I know John's you spoke about it a bunch with John about uh, the in depth level you go to with each distillery that you talk about. Um, the stories you put out, you know, it's not quick blurbs. It's really deep diving into these distilleries. And there is a very clear voice that these come across at. And I'm curious to hear what the process was like getting to the voice of the platform and deciding to bring it to the design and the, um, the structure that you have it today. I think that the the evolution of the voice 
was really getting me to stop writing the articles and hiring Megan Swanson, who's our main writer now. Uh, and she's an incredible writer. Um, and just an absolute treat to have on the team. But, you know, early on, when we were trying to figure out what this website is, again, Chase liked this concept of holistic storytelling doing like super long form articles wasn't necessarily the goal right out the gate but it as we started to talk with these distilleries we did find that it was difficult to sort of trim down uh all of these elements about them into something maybe a little bit more digestible for a consumer base that is becoming shorter and shorter with their attention spans but um you know i think when we were first putting the website together and we were looking out on the internet at what was being presented when you looked up these distilleries, 95% of it was tasting notes. And if they wrote anything about the distilleries at all, it was maybe a couple sentences or a couple of paragraphs at the most. And nobody was really diving into the, the who, how, or why, or where about these whiskeys. So I think realizing that we had an opportunity to fill a space or a void that we felt was important to be voiced was probably where the tone and the concept and structure of how our articles are sort of began to unfold. Um, and we, you know, when we're prepping for interviews, we really break it into like three parts. It's like history and background. Who are the people who founded this? Where do they come from? How did they find themselves in the industry? process and philosophy, which is all the like nerdy stuff that people like me, you know, love to dig their teeth into. What kind of mm -hmm. still do you have? What is the yeast that you use? Why this varietal of grain? Uh, all the like fun mm -hmm. stuff that 1% of people care about, but we're here for the, you know, for that 1%. Um, th this audience is part of that 1% too. So that's, that's a lot of what I talk about. Here. So, yeah. Oh, I've, oh, I've been listening, David. Um, I've been catching up, uh, and you do great stuff. And then, yeah, like Chase said, he, he has this whole brand and marketing, um, approach to it. So, you know, what's cool about it is that we tell you a little bit about where these people come from. We tell you a little bit about how and why they're doing the things they're doing, but then we're also telling you, we're trying to help give you a better idea of how they're telling their story how they're representing themselves out there. And then we do offer tasting notes at the end, but I actually think the tasting notes end up being slightly more impactful because you've just read all of this backstory into what went into every moment that went into it before that whiskey, you know, hit our palates. And now here's what we think. So that's sort of the genesis of the tone. And then Megan Swanson came in and just made it much better writing than what I was doing before. Yeah, I mean, Devin, Devin covered everything. Um, what I think in hindsight, um, we've come to appreciate that we did, maybe didn't know going into it, you know, in the decision, should this be long format, should it be short format? And, you know, it, it really goes against every kind of, you know, contemporary strategy and content production, right? It, it, to go longer and longer and longer, more in depth, more in depth, because like just you lose people's attention. And I think, um, where Devin and I, you know, have either succeeded or failed, you know, I guess our audience can, can figure that out in terms of our, our editing is that, is that these people 
who are starting craft distilleries are taking such a big risk, right? And they're doing it with such a, a sense of purpose and drive. And there, there is this like really in-depth kind of artistry to it all and craftsmanship and entrepreneurial nature to it that we thought to, to simplify it down or dumb it down to, to tasting notes or quick hits or like, here's your, here's your barrel company, here's your toasting, here's four sentences about the, the distiller itself. I think did it a, a greater disservice, right? To, to everything it actually takes to go into to starting these distilleries. We wanted to kind of pay tribute on the platform um, to these people in a more complete way. Totally. I, I completely get that. Um, I know writing from my own side, I struggle with that same kind of thing. My first couple of quote unquote reviews were just the specs and tasting notes. Um, and then I had a conversation with my friend Lindsay, who was really, she helped me build out a lot of that site and build out the idea for the podcast and all that. And, and uh, she said, you know, you need to start writing more about these places. It can't just be the reviews because everyone's writing a review. We're doing a one minute video or something. Um, there's got to be more. And um, looking at some of the uh, distilleries that we both cover, like, you know, uh, Black Button, um, Frey Ranch. I uh, know, sorry, I'm getting Frey Ranch soon. But um, Black Button, uh, <laughs> Ford Hamilton, Stolen Wolf. <clears throat> um, of course, the ones involved with with Borrowed Page. Uh, those all came post-transformation. So it was when I was really thinking like, you know, if, if I'm talking to Greg from Watershed, I want to know, like, how did this start? How did you get from still to still? Why did you choose this grain versus that grain? What's Ohio distilling like? So I get that, that desire to, um, I think you put it very well, just to, to honor the people who are creating these things and make sure their work is not distilled, pun intended, all this work, years of work designing this distilled down to a one minute review where you base, you barely know anything about it other than whether that person likes it. Um, so, yeah. I, yeah. And, and frankly, I think um, that's kind of what the, the, the craft, you know, spirit movement needs, right? Is like everyone knows that the big players in Kentucky and Tennessee spirits, we know who the, the famous figures are. We kind of know the lore around it. And then, you know, that, that kind of institutional knowledge or, you know, kind of doesn't exist for these small independent startups. And, and, and so I think to overlook it, right. You know, we, we can focus on product reviews and, and, and tasting and kind of cliff note stuff for the Kentucky Tennessee things, because we already have a base of knowledge. And I, I think to not put out the cliff note versions of these distillery stories is important because they need to build up a kind of a foundation of, of, of knowledge around who they are and why they're doing what they're doing. Plus, if you if you have a longer conversation with Greg, then you get to learn about Hammerschlagen and, <laughs> you know, a game, a game that involves hitting nails into a trunk of wood with a hammer. And, you know, that enriches the whole experience. Yeah. Yes. For sure. That part of the conversation ended up off air because it was just af chatting afterwards. But yes, learned about that one for the first time. Um, <laughs> so, uh this is interesting because this interview is going to be kind of two parts. The first part is really about like, uh, I guess, interviewing the interviewers, you know, by throwing it back on you guys. Um, and then of course, uh, dedicate some time to borrow page as well, which I'll say now, because I'm going to say it later. I loved it. Um, thank you. Yeah. And, thank you. And uh, it's also been fun because just as of yesterday, I was talking 
with Whiskey Del Bach for an episode. So before this episode with you guys comes out, I will have had an episode and tastings with all four components, which was really important to me because I wanted to understand, you know, what, what you guys were tasting and then what was going into the blend. So, and um, it's important for us too, right? Like to have you, like to hear you say you're thinking about trying to to complete the set, so to speak, and that you want to go talk to to Whiskey in the Back. Like so much of what we're doing, right? The mission is to, to elevate the profile of craft spirits and like, our page is an extension of that. And if the product can introduce someone, you know, maybe from Columbus, Ohio, who's very familiar with watershed to who whiskey Dell back is, mm-hmm. um, that's, that's a success. Um, obviously we want the product to taste good. We feel that, that it's, it's a really, you know, it really is a high quality product, but like, you know, it's, it's the conversation. It's the, it's the kind of the collaborative nature of it that we're really trying to um, put out there. Absolutely. Um, uh, when you were, when you were starting the website, and and thinking about the reviews, and this can be over over the course of, I mean, really, when you started till now, uh, what were some of the sites or podcasts or you know influencers, if you will, who you looked to as examples of what to do or maybe even what not to do? And you don't have to throw anyone under the bus who don't want to. That's it's just an open question. <laughs> no, I mean. Whiskey Wash does incredible stuff, right? Um, and Whiskey Wash, I think, is a nice model. Um, I think there's somewhere where we were like, okay, here's somebody who's giving a little bit more lip service to what people are doing. But mm-hmm. we felt we could still take things a step further. Um, and Whiskey Wash obviously also covers a lot more landscape of whiskey than us who are focusing within the American craft world but I admire what they do a lot. Um, And, you know, I think outside of that, it's for me, stuff that, that inspired me were I've been listening to whiskey cast with Mark Gillespie uh, Mm -hmm. for years. Uh, You know, he has a big chunk in the middle of his podcast where he interviews somebody and you get to learn a little bit more about what they're doing. Also, just like I could listen to his voice as I fall asleep. It's so, soothing and perfect um mm-hmm. he actually just reviewed borrowed page on his last episode uh whiskey cast which was like nice. i was just listening to it walking my dog uh <laughs> and then it came on and i was like oh wow um that was a bit of a surreal moment um you know bourbon pursuit uh what kenny and ryan are doing uh probably was another big inspiration because they were bringing people on like i learned about charbet in california listening to bourbon pursuit so and again they they maybe skew a little bit more towards traditional kentucky bourbon um as their main focus but they were bringing interesting people who were doing interesting things on so for me those were inspirations um but still with enough room where i felt like we could do something different than what they were doing I really wasn't a whiskey content consumer, right? That was Devin's piece. Like I said, my ambition going into it was really just to reconnect with him, but I'm a, a, a consume a lot of storytelling content. And, and I think of people out there like, yeah, I, I really like, you know, Muse by Cleo. You get to, you know, some really good behind the scenes information about why people are telling stories the way they are or ad week or um, things like that. But then I was even really thinking about like, you know, the 30 by 30s. Right. It's it's the the, the last dance with, with Michael Jordan. Like it, it is this 
we all know who Michael Jordan is and and we don't really know how like why he turned out why he was able to accomplish what he did or why he was motivated to the extent that he was or how he trained himself or how he interacted with people and this kind of um, behind the scenes storytelling that provides a lot of rich context to the pieces of Michael Jordan as a brand and as a person that we already know. And, 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 and I think that's where my motivation was kind of coming into it. And it married really well with Devin's kind of more, you know, traditional whiskey content centric information, but also like his, his um, more technical whiskey understanding. And I, I think it gives it a really unique perspective. Um, obviously I'm biased, but I think it gives it a unique perspective um, on the, the storytelling front for a lot of these distilleries. Well, like, I, I agree. I'm, um, so, uh, Devin, I know you've been listening, so you've probably heard this, but, uh, I'm a nonprofit fundraiser during the day. <clears throat> and a couple of years ago, uh, there was a shift around the same time this happened everywhere, really, but there was a shift towards, um, what was called donor centric fundraising, but it was really about uh, storytelling and telling the story of the organization you're representing better in a more um, insightful way, in a way that was going to engage with people much more, uh, rather than just going to them and saying, hey, we've got this program, we need money. Um, which, I mean, in a way, is kind of what a lot of whiskey companies do. They're like, we have this product, we want you to buy it. It's the same kind of idea if you really simplify it. And I didn't realize that at the time, but um, thinking about it in terms of storytelling and making sure these stories were told and going back a step further, finding those interesting stories became um, a lot of fun. And that's really uh, why the podcast was born was because I wanted to talk to people, get those stories and, you know, like this, you know, hear about the two kids who were five years old and got benched and, uh, you know, <laughs> how they ended up here. So um one quick question that I wanted to ask before I forget. How did you finally nail down Ari from Mammoth Distilling? Uh, well, he was kind of connected to us through a mutual friend. Uh, Leah Niskanen, who I worked with um, and for at Kings County Distillery for a while. She introduced me to Ari via email. And... I don't know. I mean, it sounds maybe like you've had a harder time nailing him down <laughs> to be completely honest with you. He was like rock and roll. Let's do this. And he and Chad hopped on a, on a call with Chase and I like two weeks later. So, um, but truly like one of mammoth and especially with Ari, like stewarding their distilling program out there, just some of the coolest stuff um, mm -hmm. that's happening with whiskey right now. And they're so sweet. And Ari and Chad keep, telling chase and i to come up to michigan to visit them and mm -hmm. i you know there's just been other stuff going on but as soon as we can possibly get up there um i'm gonna accept their hospitality because they're really great people yeah the the question admittedly was a bit facetious because i i've i've got to connect with that. i even had a phone call with them we mapped out we had like a 20 minute phone call mapped out four or five episodes during the call because you know they're connected with so many different things and have so many pans in the fire um, so it's a little bit facetious just cause I, yeah, it's been impossible to nail that guy down to be like, let's talk this, this date. So I will it, double my it, efforts. It's one of my favorite articles that we've ever put on the website and hands down was the most difficult article to 
finalize. It was the first time that we ever considered the concept of releasing a two-part article. Mm-hmm. And we didn't because, honestly, I, I don't think it's because we thought it was a bad idea. I think it was like getting a little late in the month and we were... I was looking around like, we got to get our stuff together, guys. Let's get something (laughs) on this website. Um, But truly so much interesting stuff. It was near impossible to edit that article down to something that we felt, even with our long articles, (laughs) was digestible enough. Um, Yeah. I'll I'll just jump in and say, um, you know, to start a distillery or a craft or otherwise is such an incredible undertaking. to you know, to complicate it more, that you want to revive a grain, and you know, you want to grow that grain exclusively on an island like it used to, on mm-hmm. um, you know, national forestry land. So there's all that complicated. And you can't get like th- those guys. If there's an easy easy path to do anything, they're not taking it. And and you know, <laughs> and and I really think that's like when 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 you taste mammoth, when you talk about the, the story, like I. You know, maybe it's it's the northern way or up north, right? They always say it, it, it's it, there's their product is so enriched by just their philosophy and their mindset of who they are. And again, I think it goes back to like why we really enjoyed having conversation with them and why we were so honored to put their story on our website is because like that context, like you shouldn't be drinking, you know, their product without the context of those things because like what they are doing for the betterment not just of their brand but for whiskey more broadly. Um, and especially in defining what Michigan whiskey is, like, like it's it's really unbelievable and, and, and deserves kind of tribute. Sure, and that touches upon something that I've been considering more in, in recent episodes and trying to do these mini articles that I do for each of the reviews is that question of intentionality as context. Mm-hmm. You know, if you if you taste something without the context, then how can you? Not correctly, but how can you rightly evaluate it? You know, if you're expecting, if you hear I'm tasting a rye, just that's the context you're given. Chances are your mind is going to go to probably a 70-year-old something from MGP. That's where so much of the rye is still made um, on a large scale. And that's what your mind's going to evaluate against. But if you know that, oh, I'm trying this rye that's, you know, two, three, four, five years old from this heritage brand that was rebuilt for a couple of seeds on islands, you know, Manitou Island, um, that's, that puts a different measure in your mind as to what am I tasting here? Um, and I, I thought about that when reading Mam- your uh, mammoth article, um, which is both literal and figurative. And I thought about that when reading the stolen wolf one as well, because for me, they have very, uh, they have those parallel lines where they're also working with Rosen, trying to resurrect these farms, you know, on a more, on a larger scale in, in the farmland, so geographically there, and thinking about getting to taste the Rosen rye right off the still. So I got to do that when I was down at Stolen Wolf, and it, it doesn't taste like any rye you've ever had. I didn't even think it tasted like rye, frankly. Um, it's 131 proof. Um, thankfully cooled down, but otherwise right off the still and it was delicious. But if you drank that, you would never know it was a rye. Um, I'm jealous, David. You got, you got me. Frozen rye off the still is, uh, 
is a bucket list thing right now for me. So damn you. Uh, well, you'll, you'll just have to <laughs> fly back from Colorado sometime and, uh, you know, back to, I don't know. I know West coast has best coast, but you know, back home to the East, the beast yeah. of the East to the right um, coast, to the right coast. Yes. So, um, um yeah. I, I will say just, just to kind of riff off what you're saying, it's like, yeah, that, that context, right. Of who the brand is, what, why their purpose behind what they do, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's not, it's not unique to craft spirits or, or spirit industry or even, even alcohol beverage industries. Like every brand out there is trying sure. to communicate those things. And we live in a world where I think people are more and more trending towards like, they want to relate with the products they buy or the mm-hmm. brands they support. Right. And all of that is accomplished through history and context, um, philosophy and purpose and things of like that. And then, you know, that, that, that's kind of why we, we set it up the way we did. We didn't want to talk about the product without those pieces because of course we're influenced by them. Right. Like, just like if you're drinking any Buffalo Trace product, you're going to be influenced by the fact that they also make Pappy Van Winkle. And that is allegedly the best whiskey. Right. Like, you know, like yeah. th- those things exist and we are influenced by them. And, and you know, we talk I, we talked to so many craft distilleries that want to think about marketing as like a four letter word. Right. It's mm-hmm. it's this thing that distracts away from the producing and it's not really sincere, right? Like if the product is good enough, you don't need marketing. And, and every once in a while we'll stumble across some people who, who don't have that philosophy. But in my mind is like, these are two pieces that enrich one another, right? Like mm-hmm. marketing, if you're selling a bad product, marketing really, really won't work all that well. But if you have a good product and you can't market it, people can't understand why it's a good product, then then you're not going to sell anything either. And, and so like, these craft facilities are really trying to define without a long history to draw from of how do they communicate who they are and their purpose for doing what they do. And in the landscape of like needing to have differentiation in your storytelling is like getting more and more competitive at this moment. And, you know, they're, they're like Stolen Wolf is a great example. Like the story behind what they do, like if you don't want to go just exclusively start drinking Stolen Wolf because of you know their story, like, then I, I don't know how you're going to be moved. Maybe this is not, not the industry for you, for you to go, go down the rabbit hole on. Cause like it, same thing with mammoth. Like if you yep. can't embrace the fact that when you taste their products, that you, you know, the hard work and the, the lengths of their endeavor and, and the things they are doing to revive their grain and to kind of jumpstart mission, you know, crap see like, man, like, yeah, you, I want that to influence me. Like, turn that B into a B plus or an A into an A plus, right? Like that, that's the whole point yeah. of it. And, and, and if the net result is me as the consumer enjoys it more then that's a success. Uh, look, absolutely. And and I know you guys uh, don't, I'm looking at one right now just to make sure that I'm correct on this. Yes. Okay. So I know you guys don't um, rate the whiskeys that you get to try um, by, by number. You put the tasting notes, um, but not the rating. But I have been thinking about this because I do I do want to put ratings, keep ratings on there for my own sake, because it reminds me, you know, what do I like the most? What do I not? But I've started rating based on the context and the intentionality. Like, is the distiller and the distillery or the producer meeting the goals that they are setting out? Like, are they fulfilling their story? Um, so one like Stolen Wolf, like 
yeah they are like that rosen rye alt still is is a story the the uh blended whiskey that they have that's six seven years old now is delicious and that's its own story as well um hell even the few i think it was called kindred spirits bottles um that they had that they sourced from mgp but then held on to for a little bit that's its own story as well and if you look at it with that context it it's a big difference and particularly i, I know um you guys have spoken you mentioned it earlier in a different different language but um you said you know part of the platform was to expand the voice of the american craft distilling movement and that's as you were pointing out jay's like these places a lot of them don't have marketing budgets they're working word of mouth very local um a couple break out in a big way but most of the time it's really you know whiskey del bach is very open that Arizona is their biggest market. You know, where they are in Arizona is their biggest market. California and New York are second and third, and they usually are because that's where everything goes after its initial state. Um, same thing with, um, with, I was just looking at a bottle, uh, Middle West, but also for that matter, uh, Wiggle in, in Pittsburgh. Um, there's another distillery that I'll be talking to in a few weeks. Um, I can't, say the name on air yet but uh they're also in pittsburgh they're hyper local they only sent stuff out to a couple of people and even getting in touch with them is really difficult but um their story is intriguing and fascinating uh and part of why i think uh number one the your guys interview with john was so uh really enthralling i'll use that word enthralling um and as is the rest of what you do is that whiskey and spirits is particularly well tuned to storytelling it's uh you know even even the heritage brands you know this idea that elijah craig was the first to char barrels and it was by accident uh, you know to get the fish smell out of a barrel or something you know <laughs> evan williams being the first distiller and all this even though we figured out that the first um, the first written record, at least, of whiskey in the Americas was in New York City or New Amsterdam, really. But um, you say 1640. So take that, Kentucky. And um, yeah. thank you, the Dutch. Yes. Thank you, Dutch. <laughs> and um, they knew their, they knew they needed their spirits. Uh, well, they knew they couldn't make enough brandy is what they knew. But that that too. Yes. Yeah. Um, so yeah these these places are it, it is incumbent upon uh those who talk to them those who try their products and visit to talk about them um and it's something that i think you both clearly and i hope i also uh, take as a, a challenge but also a real honor to you know i love going to kentucky to meet a bunch of people and talking about fort hamilton and knowing that alex was there the week before i was and knowing he's going to be back and just pounding that pavement to to get the product and he's between him and barry brinegar from rd1 i don't think anyone works harder than those two guys pounding the pavement for their product um but the the point of all that being that as i know i got a i got on a tangent there was that uh you're expanding the voice and in doing so um the idea 
becomes your storytelling and the content is more important than brevity. Yeah. And yes. that comes out with the mammoth article with others as well, that it's, you don't want to cut that out because everything you cut out is a part of the story that you lose. Well, and it's like, I think we think of ourselves as storytellers, right? That's, that's what we want the website to be. That's where it came from. I never really thought of the website as a marketing tool or something as a marketing benefit for these distilleries. But then, you know, we win the double platinum marketing award from the Ascot awards this year for the website. And, uh, you know, I guess marketing, storytelling, whatever you want to call it. But yeah, I mean, everything we do is about making people more aware of the cool things that other people are doing. Uh, around this country yeah and you guys get to do it as as a pair of friends which uh i'll i'll be honest i do want a co-host or a, a co-writer or somebody to do that because you know pumping out content is is rough but um uh, you know you guys have a great balance and having um i'm sorry megan megan yes um with you to help write too it, everything comes across as very cohesive and as as a passion project which whiskey whether you get paid for it or not it ends up being a passion project for all of us and it's good when that comes through um so i want to keep us moving because i know we, i want to keep us to a tight hour and a half if possible um so um one so before we get closer to the barred page uh one topic that uh john kind of touched on but i don't think was answered was uh one of the main storylines this fall with whiskey is that finally the uh, american single malt has proposed standards of identity it the public comment period i think uh will have ended or is about to end when this episode comes out um and i'm not sure if it was uh you devon or you chase who said it uh, but um, he said there were things that you would have liked to see um, in the regulations or different in the regulations. And I just wanted to give you a chance to um, say what those things were. Yeah, I mean, first and foremost, I'm super happy for the American Single Malt Commission and for every distillery that makes an American Single Malt that meets these standards. Um, standardizing this and having a new style of American whiskey that is, you know, a legal classification for the first time since, I don't want to say it's since 1964, but it feels like that's how long ago it's been. But it's 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 a wonderful time to be alive. It elevates the category and it will be an incredible boon to the people who make it. And there's still a ton of room for experimentation and innovation. So my personal thoughts and feelings are no knock at all on the incredible hard work that the American Single Mall Commission has done. They should be really proud of themselves, and I'm really happy for them. The only standard that gets to me a little bit, and it's not that I don't understand the reasoning for it, but it's limiting it to malted barley. You know... From one standpoint, I get it. Because if you talk about a malt whiskey 
pretty much anywhere around the world, we're talking about a barley made whiskey, scotch, Japan, Ireland, Australia, India, the, you know, London, anywhere. That's what we're talking about. And if we want American single malt to be its own thing, but also recognizable within the larger context of malt whiskeys, I get making it malted barley. But it does feel a little bit like there is an opportunity here to allow for American single malts to be very definitively and distinctively different than a malt that you could get anywhere else in the world, a malted whiskey. And to eliminate American heritage grains, uh, you know, like I think about Old Potrero, the 100% rye malt with that with you know before the standardization could be considered american single malt after the standardization that will no longer be considered an american single malt because it uses rye instead of barley uh you know i've tasted so many really interesting malted corn whiskeys i i really wish that there was more of those out there a lot of really cool stuff coming out of mexico specifically but um you know i i just think we really lost an opportunity to not only standardize American single malt, but allow for it to be something truly American by using grains that are native to our geography and having 100% corn or 100% rye or 100% wheat um, could just be something really interesting. But you know, there's still a there's still American whiskey uh, as a you know, non-category. And, uh, and so there's still a lot of room for innovation and experimentation. Uh, and I'm excited to see what American single malt producers do to push innovation and experimentation, experimentation within those standards that they helped establish with the TTV. It all makes sense. Um, I, I hear the concern. I know where the, you know, the, it's fair to call it criticism, I think. Um, I hear that because I know others who share the same thought. Um, I don't think we should be worried about the finishing and flavoring comment um, that was put in the public SOIs or the proposed SOIs. That's not going to go through. But um, no, I, I hear you because if you're creating a category for American, for American whiskey, a whole new class um, separate from the, you know, 51% class, as I call it. Um, yeah, it should be a little different. And there's definitely a lot of those malted grains that are creating something that's we haven't seen before. I mean, um, I don't know if you've had a chance to try the Big Angus from Copper Sea up here in New York. No. Not yet. Yeah. So um, so do you know what it is, Arjun? I don't. Okay. I wasn't sure. Look, I know this is audio only, but um you looked for a second like there was a little flicker recognition there, so I wasn't sure yet. Um don't so, give my poker tells away on the podcast, David. <laughs> I got to take something away for poker night. I mean, come on. Just quick side. You know how long I've been wanting to get a poker game going around here? Seriously, man. Uh, when I'm in next time I'm in town, call me, hit me up. I love poker. I'll come over. Awesome. We, we, we can't go down that rabbit hole. We, we could exclusively lose money in the whiskey industry right now. We, we can't go start funneling it to, to, to poker. <laughs> no, that's, that's fair. And 
remember you have a a um a site so you're exclusively losing money on that too most likely because yeah. we all are so <laughs> um <laughs> but but um anyway though i i just wanted to put it to you because uh devin because i know i'm they're concerned and now that i'm thinking about it i think uh in the white paper that you wrote on the grain on american mash and grain that i think you mentioned it there so my apologies for missing that note earlier but the uh so the big angus green malt from copper sea is um it's a malted grain and instead of kilning it to stop the germination process before mashing they take it green and um you know grind it and mash it there so it skips the kilning process and basically allows it to continue germinating until it's crushed uh so I can honestly say I it's one of the maybe two or three whiskeys I've ever tried that I couldn't really give tasting notes on because it was so <laughs> singular that I had nothing to compare it to. Wow. You know, um, I'm not sure even if I liked it. I don't know if I hated it or thought it was one of the most incredible things I've ever tasted. Um, the other one that comes to mind is um, from Spirits of French Lick, the Whiskey Witch. Yeah. I I have I've talked to Alan about it. I've had other people try it. I don't know what the hell to write for that whiskey because it's just <laughs> it's it's different. Like how do you it, there is no context for that other than other than the story you can't compare it. So um anyway. For moving towards the uh towards Bora page uh within uh, Devin, as you were just explaining, this idea that although single malt might be categorized and classified in this particular way, it, including most things, but excluding a certain uh, swath of distilleries, there is this American whiskey category that is a catch-all for whatever doesn't fit within the 51 class, the proposed single malt class, and a, and a couple others like light whiskey. Um, I think light whiskey was the last one that was classified, but I'll double check that. So with American whiskey, um, you know, you've put it as it's it's kind of the true bastion of the next unbridled innovation because there is so much you can do with it. Like once you check the boxes for being called a whiskey, you know, grain-based, oak, you know, a couple of proof points, like that's all you need. Um, you can really do anything <laughs> in a way and be able to call it American whiskey. So as you two were thinking about developing borrowed page, um, I was curious which way you came at it from, were you coming at it as you knew from the start that this was going to be in that category of American whiskey, because it would be blending together multiple varieties of whiskey, or did you kind of have this idea that you wanted to create a blend of whiskeys and it's just so happened that you had multiple categories, so it ended up in American whiskey. I think Devin was kind of the, the, the nail in the coffin on the American whiskey decision. Um, so I'll jump in with the context or else it'll, it'll be a while before I speak again. Um, <laughs> no, it, it, the idea really started with that we wanted to evolve a product out of the storytelling platform. And the idea was that that the product wanted was going to be an extension of our mission, right? We wanted to elevate the profile uh, of American craft whiskey. 
And you know, when you're doing one thing, all right, if, you, if you're generating content and that's what you're doing, that's the lane you're in and you're gonna serve the mission well, it's gonna be awesome. But we knew we could make a bigger splash. We knew we could better serve the mission if we evolved that into a product as well, because there's all this ancillary attention and conversation like the one we're having right now that, that spins out of that, right? So the idea of creating a blend using uh, the distilleries we, we feature on the website kind of predates this, this uh, I, I don't know if you wanna say commitment or the idea of really owning or leaning into American whiskey, um, but the, the, the purpose for behind doing the blend was really as an extension of that mission. And then De Devin really came in with this, uh, well, let's make it American whiskey kind of, kind of thought process. And I'll, I'll let him speak more to that. Yeah. I mean, I think the idea of at some point doing a blend, um, where we got to work with people that we had featured on the website. I think that was an idea we had relatively early on, just when we were thinking, should this thing kind of start to take off? How could we grow it in a way that was within our our mission, like Chase was talking about? Honestly, I really do think it was uh, Matt Hoffman from, from Westland put like a very like, I don't want to say ominous, but he put this thing on Instagram that sort of tipped everybody in the industry off that the TTB was about to take up American single malt for real. Um, and at that point I was relatively confident that the standards were going to be what the single malt commission had put together. And I was happy for them, but I think that was kind of a little bit of the kick in the pants towards American whiskey. Cause I had that thought. I was like, wow, okay, American whiskey might be like the last place where you can really mess around with some stuff and be weird um, in a way that, you know, I mean, you took the words, I think literally my words out of my own mouth with the unbridled, you know, innovation. But, um, but I also think, you know, we had this idea that we wanted to one day release a blend. Um, but that's kind of, we stalled out there. That's where we were with it. And I think it's because we were trying to think, all right, well, if we make a bourbon with, you know, Kings County Distillery and Few and, oh my God, I'm blanking on places that we've talked to that make bourbon, probably <laughs> almost all of them, um, you know, Highwire. Okay, we could, there, there's some interesting stuff that you could, you know, it's an interesting bourbon. But all in all, I just think that it, that, that idea bored us a little bit. Um, and I think when the idea of American whiskey got into my head, I was, I was thinking, okay, well, if we're blending multiple styles of whiskey together, that means that we could take a, one distillery that's got bourbon, one that's got rye, one that's got single malt or wheat whiskey or whatever, you know, we could blend them all together. What if we could make a whiskey that, you know, the sum of the parts is great. It is a unique product. It's something different than what anybody has had before. We're becoming a part of the conversation about what American whiskey can be, because that's a big, a big part of the reason why we focus on craft whiskey and the innovation that's happening there is because for a hundred years, American whiskey was one thing. And it was basically, it was Kentucky bourbon, it was Tennessee whiskey. In the last 
you know, 12 years, we've gone from 195 distilleries to over 2000 and everybody is doing something a little bit different. The, the concept of what American whiskey can be is going to start to change. And we're really just at the beginning of getting an idea of what that change can be. So the idea that we could blend multiple styles together and create something that was wholly distinctive and different than what anybody had ever tasted before and become a part of that conversation that we were trying to shine a light on was super interesting to me. But then beyond that, I thought, well, if we're really using distinctive styles of whiskey here, maybe in the flavor profile, you can also kind of pick up those notes and maybe that can be something else that helps us shine the light back on the people that we got the whiskey from. Um, you know, specifically with Borrowed Page Volume 1, you know, we've got that mesquite smoked single malt in there from Whiskey Del Bac in Tucson, Arizona. That's a distinctive flavor profile. You can pick that up in Borrowed Page. If that's something that interests you, you can find out where that came from. And all of a sudden, you're paying attention to Whiskey Del Bac. So it when the idea sort of came to me, and then as I started to think about it and talk with Chase through it a little bit more, I think we just realized how aligned the concept was with what our company is and who we strive to be. Yeah, and, and I, I, you know, not to, to belabor the point, right, is um, the most interesting thing, in my opinion, about craft whiskey that's going on right now is, is just this exploding notion of innovation people are taking it in different directions and we start standardizing more and more and more you're really going to get what could have been a huge variety of ideas and expressions and regional things in in, in in you know simplifying it down to a handful of different well you need to fit in these boxes or, the, or those boxes and um you know i i think one of the things we love about borrowed page is that it maybe it touches a little bit on your 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 comment about intentionality uh, David is like there are people who are doing things that are intentionally not in those molds and we want to kind of highlight what those people are doing intentionally back to to, to not being in a mold to, to really just just have a conversation with like whiskey to be good doesn't need to be 51 percent right it, it doesn't need to be malted barley exclusive you know, these are the things and, and I, I understand a lot of the value of having kind of these um, the standardization, right? Because it, it really helps people understand what it is and it gives it a platform and a voice. And there's a lot of room to get creative and expand within there. But like, you know, the American single malt movement doesn't happen if everyone wants to just exclusively commit to bourbon, right? And we don't want mm -hmm. to miss the next American single malt because people are so exclusively committed to, to kind of these new standards. Um, and, and that's what we want to work with, you know, you know, these other craft series to kind of destigmatize to a degree on uh, what American whiskey that, that um, designation stands for. Well, and, and to add one more point to it too, Chase and I have spent over two years now talking to these small business entrepreneurs, innovators out there. We've been inspired by them. The, you know, their stories are very inspiring. It made us want, it made us want to aspire to do something new and different and unique as well. And when you're talking to these people, and I remember when we when we did the feature on Bainbridge Organic Distillery out in Bainbridge Island, Washington. Um, I mean, there there's a distillery 
where their wheat whiskey has consistently won best wheat whiskey at some of the biggest awards, San Francisco World World Spirit World Whiskey Awards over and over and over again. But within the country that it's made, they're not allowed to call it a wheat whiskey because they distill over 160 proof. You know, it's like, you know, and that's no knock at the TTB or, or American standards either. But, you know, it's like, all right, well, here's something that is being internationally recognized as one of the greatest expressions of this style. And within our own country, we can't call it the thing that it is because of these standards. And and so, yeah, I think, it, you know, stuff like that inspired us to go um color outside the lines hey whiskey ringers i hope you've been taking advantage of that podcast only code for the scotch malt whiskey society they've got around 20 bottlings coming out each month and there's never a shortage of new things to explore this month's focus their october distillery dive is distillery number five this famous lowland distillery will show you something completely different and you've probably never had before this isn't your floral and fruity space side, but it's also not that smoky, sometimes medicinal and maritime isla. It's truly unique and in a category and region all its own. The distillery dive bottlings were announced on October 11th, so you might still find some available. If not, keep an eye out. There are always more bottles coming from this distillery and others, and always new journeys to explore. There are also currently five fall bundles available packaging multiple bottles together from sometimes the same and sometimes different distilleries into a discounted set for you to discover. Remember to use the promo code WRP for 20% off your annual membership, and you can visit the Scotch Malt Whiskey Society website to sign up and order via the link in the show notes. It makes sense, and one need look no farther than than Scotland. I think it is the best example for what happens when you overregulate to... It's one thing to say if the Scotch Whiskey Association, the SWA, had said that if you want to make a single malt or malt whiskey, it has to be this way. But it's gotten to a point where if you want it to be called Scottish whiskey or Scotch, it has to be this way. And as a result, they may make a lot of great whiskey, but that's the only type of whiskey that is being made there because nothing else can be called uh, whiskey or not easily certainly um, a couple others being you know Ireland is similarly I don't think it's as powerful um, Colin might Colin from Kings County might disagree after the letter he got about that Irish style I whiskey I think he certainly disagrees uh, yes yeah. <laughs> yes um, but uh, you know recently I got to try Waterford from there and it's you know it's an Irish whiskey by nature of being in Ireland but it's an Irish whiskey that's in the style of a Scottish single malt. And it tastes much more like a single malt scotch than it does what you would think of as an Irish whiskey, um, whether you want to go Jameson, Bushmills, or any, or Cooley, I guess, in between. So <clears throat> there is that delicate balance to be had. And to your uh, point, Devin, about Bainbridge in particular and that overclassification. Uh, I just talked about this with with Whiskey Delbach, and this is something that Amanda Paul um, Stevens' daughter had said that you know I want to make sure I get this quote right because it's a, it was a really good quote and I'd like to get those right. So 
said that she preferred reviews to awards because there's more engagement and discussion leading to greater knowledge of the product. And, uh, you know, to that point, Bainbridge, maybe they could be the most awarded wheat whiskey ever if they wanted to, or if they kept entering awards. But, you know, as you said, in your own country, you can't be called that. And I don't even think they're really widely known or certainly not as widely known as they should be in their own country. And it's because there's just not enough discussion about them. And the more we talk about them, the more we talk about the whiskey Dell box, the watersheds, all these different distilleries, they get more knowledge and people know more about them and can say, all right, I don't really care that we can't call them a wheat whiskey. I understand that they intended to be a wheat whiskey. So that's, how I'm going to try it. You know, middle West, uh, I, I've told the story before, but I don't, I didn't particularly like their wheat whiskey at first. It was fine, but uh, as a lot of wheat whiskeys can be, I found it a little one note. But then in talking to, to Ryan Lang there, he said, don't think of it as a wheat whiskey the way you would a Bernheim or um, a Woodford wheat whiskey. Think of it as a wheat whiskey in the style of a single malt. 95% wheat, 5% malted barley, but it's designed to be more like a single malt just made with wheat. And that completely changed my review of it, my notes, what I was picking up because that's what they were going for. And that's more important. Um, And that circles back to the intentionality. Like once you talk to the people and you know what they're trying to get at and provide that context, it it's so much better for the consumer. And for even if it's 5% of consumers or 1% of consumers that really look at these things and, and really try to find more information those that's the one to five percent who are going to pick up these products and uh, talk about them with their friends and slowly but surely get out there. So, all right. So I know we are running a bit long, so I want to make sure we get good time for uh, make sure we get good time for the product itself. Thankful to do could go to each of the bottles involved or products involved and say, "Oh, okay, I get this in this blend." So how did how do you feel you balance the locality with the ultimate blend? Um, exceptionally well. I mean, just that's, as good that's, as that's what I was looking for. That's the answer I was looking um, for. No, I mean, uh, I'm super proud of what's in the bottle for volume one. And I also think that, you know, through luck or fate or whatever, we ended up with the right, distilleries to partner with for this first whiskey um it's big it's bold very robust super flavorful starts off a little bit like a bourbon so um you know the nose for me is super inviting it's the it was uh when we were blending it was the first thing that all of us kind of perked up about when we got our nose into this version of the blend and i should mention um you know, Chase and I blended this, but we also had the help of Anne Demick, who we met when she was working at Watershed Distillery. Um, she's an incredible um, whiskey mind, an incredible person, super helpful from kind of the very early beginnings of this project all the way through blending and has a ton of blending credits to her own, you know, to herself. We were getting close to the point where we knew we had to put this thing together and I started to get a little bit nervous that chase and i had never blended anything ever before Mm -hmm. um so i reached out to ann and 
and we were lucky that she was super into it and, and wanted to jump on. So Anne was with us every step of the way as we blended this pro uh, product, which was um, invaluable. But the nose was the first thing that jumped out to us. Super inviting. It's a high proof whiskey. Um, I mean, we're talking 58.4% um, alcohol, but you get your nose in there. I mean, I'm not going to lie. If you, have, if you, if this is your first crack of an alcohol bottle today and you shove your nose in there, this thing's going to get you. So, yeah. <laughs> you know, advisory label warning, but for such a high proof whiskey, it really doesn't scare you off. And there's so much wonderful sweetness and a little bit of spice there on the nose, but it's just, it draws you in. And that was the first thing that sort of popped out to us. When you get, when you go to taste it, I think the bourbons really sing up front, which I'm hoping will help, you know, bourbon drinkers appreciate the entry into this whiskey because it doesn't stay in that bourbon lane for super long, but you get all these really wonderful, sweet vanilla notes, caramel notes, butterscotch notes right up front. I attribute a lot of that to Watershed's bourbon, um, which is uh, made in a really traditional style on a column still. It's a light bourbon, but super sweet, really flavorful, really approachable. Uh, I think a lot of the Spirits of French Lick bourbon is in there too, and that gives it a little bit more heft, a little bit of spice, and, and certainly I think the mouthfeel owes a lot to the Spirits of French Lick bourbon because in the Lee Sinclair bourbon that they make out there in Indiana, they use oats in the mash bill. And oats tend to give whiskeys a little bit more of a velvety or silky texture on the palate. And I think it's what helps this whiskey drink so easily at, you know, uh, almost 117 proof. It's dangerous how easy it is to drink this whiskey, I think, at this proof. And I think that we owe a lot of that to the Lee Sinclair bourbon out of Spirits of French Lick. Then all these beautiful kind of spicy notes come in right through the middle for me. And again, everybody's, you know, palates are different. So everybody's going to have a different experience with this. But I do hope I'm incepting everybody just a little bit who's listening to this podcast here this evening. But you get these beautiful I've, I've already spicy... written my notes, so you're not going to incept me. So go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> you get these beautiful spicy notes. I think, you, you know, the Lee Sinclair opens that door. I think Wiggle walks through it all these beautiful black pepper and cinnamon notes, but because Wiggle has no corn in their rye, it's a rye, wheat, and barley mash bill, there's a certain softness to their rye as well that I think allows for some stone fruit kind of flavors to come through in that mm -hmm. mid-palate to sort of play with the spice to be a nice transition note from the vanillas and caramels that the bourbons give you up front. And then all of these flavors are kind of sticking with you and then that mesquite comes in, that mesquite smoke. You get some malty notes from the barley, but that mesquite smoke comes in. And what I love about it personally is that it, I feel like it changes everything. You know, suddenly those vanilla and stone fruit notes I was getting, the mesquite comes in and now it's barbecue sauce. You know, those mm -hmm. peppery and spicy notes, now it's brisket. Uh, mm -hmm. And, it you know, the mesquite comes in and just changes everything and and it's got a really great, long, complex finish on it, too. Then you get your nose back in there after tasting it. Some of that smoky mesquite comes through on the nose as well. So, you know, I, I'm so tempted to do a little 
Ghostbusters, uh, you know, quote, call it fate, call it, <laughs> you know, luck, call it <laughs> karma. But I think that the three of us were really able to get these four distillates together blend them in a way that truly creates an experience that's unlike something that I've tasted before and shows off the best elements of the four whiskeys that we did in a way that I think people can really appreciate. So I, I think we did well. Uh, I mean, you like it, David. So that's the, that's the goal. At the end of the day, the goal is just to hope that people like it. No, I I do really like it. And I think uh, to circle back on what you said about the appeal, to, particularly to bourbon drinkers um, or those who think American whiskey is bourbon, like all bourbon. Um, I know at 700 something bottles, this isn't meant to be like, you know, the maker's mark on everybody's bar or every back bar at every bar. But that being said, for those who do taste it, I, yeah, I, I thought it was perfectly designed for getting people to experiment and go a little outside of their comfort zone. Um, yeah, the bourbon, and I, I think some rye producers have done this as well, where the bourbon influence corn in the rye case to kind of get into the mash bill invites people in, you get the sweetness that you associate with bourbon. Um, and hell, hell I've had international uh, listeners tell me they don't drink bourbon because it's too sweet. You know, for me, there was a time where wild turkey was too spicy. So I, I don't know where to, I land on that, but, um, <laughs> but the, the point being that bourbon can be very sweet and then you get to roll in with the rye, which is spicy, but as you said, it's not, it's a Monongahela style, but it's not like punch you in the face, black pepper kind of rye. Um, and then using the whiskey tobacco with the mesquite smoke, a smoke, which is not typical of American whiskeys, of bourbons and ryes, but it's familiar because as you said, barbecue would smoke. Um, it's not, it's not peat. It's not vegetal. It's all smoke, um, which yeah, reminds me of barbecue. And it's also an American thing that, that barbecuing, uh, tradition. And lastly too, there, because there's, um, relatively such a small percentage of the whiskey Del Bach in there, it's 10% of the blend. Uh, the smoke is very subtle. Uh, subtle to the point where if um, if you didn't have the context necessarily or didn't know, you could maybe attribute it to the smokiness you get from barrel char, which in and of itself may not be exactly what you were looking for, but it'll be something familiar to American drinkers who are used to drinking things that had to be in a new charred oak barrel. Um, so they're always getting a little bit of barrel char, hopefully, in and getting a little smokiness in there. So in that way too, I thought it was just a good idea to expand people's horizons a little bit and get them to explore. And you know, clearly with the the sample that was sent to me, I've made a good dent in there. So, um, uh, yeah, I I have quite enjoyed it. So you did mention this already, so I'm just going to briefly touch on it, which is this idea that, um, and I I am throwing a lot of your words back at you because they were good words, and I like to do that that you won't just work with anybody. Um, and uh, for me, it reminded me a lot of Lost Lantern. Uh, and they were a guest a couple of episodes ago, um, still talking with them. And, and Adam and Nora are great to talk to about finding these smaller distilleries and 
showcasing them through, in their case, through single barrels. And as of now, one blend, though I know more are coming, uh, thankfully. So it did remind me of that just in the sense of really being picky. You know, you want to expand people's palates. You want to introduce them to new distilleries, new types of whiskey. But at the same time, you have to know that there's reluctance. There's any number of hurdles in getting people to try new things and try new whiskey styles. And so you got to kind of ease them in and figuring out those distilleries that are good gateways to doing so, um, which I think, you know, all of these I would consider as great gateway whiskeys into trying new things is a perfect example of that. Um, one, actually, I did want to ask specifically, because I don't remember seeing this on your website. Um, had you guys talked already to uh, Santa Fe Spirits? No, um, I would love to uh, talk to... Uh... God, it's Colin. Uh, Colin, yeah. Cole Keegan. Yeah, Cole Keegan. Yeah. I'm always trying to like break the name apart. And then sure. uh, um, I think, you know, I think we would love to. We Whiskey Del Bach was the second ever feature on the website. Right. Um, mm-hmm. And since they both do the mesquite smoked malt, uh, you know, thing, um, it's just taken us a while to kind of circle back around to Santa Fe, but it's, you know, it's a conversation that I think we'd love to have. Absolutely. Uh, Colin was great. He's been a great resource as I've been researching these American single malts too. But as soon as, well, one, as soon as I was interviewing Whiskey Del Bach and the Mesquite part had to go back to that. But then I was wondering, had you talked to them because that could have been another, you know, another Mesquite single malt, a Mesquited single malt to to add in there um and delving a little bit into that you know santa fe smokes um 30 of their malt is mesquited i know uh whiskey del bach does it differently they've got the classic that's unsmoked and then the dorado which is mostly and then has a little bit of classic in there to cut the smoke uh when you guys received the samples um again i'm not sure which one of you said this uh i wasn't sure the voices at the time that i wrote that that was writing this note but um one of you were kind of very devoted to which whiskey del bach expression you wanted and how you wanted it um including you know you got samples that were 100 percent mesquite smokes um so uh, what had you kind of figure out what level of smoke was going to be appropriate and and uh which variation of of um whiskey del bach to go with well i think we i think we both wanted the same thing i was maybe more bullheaded about it but i'll let chase talk about how we sort of came around to the level that we have in the blend yeah yeah i mean it's one thing i don't think we appreciated when we started out um how much a little goes a long way when it comes to smoked um you know grain smoked whiskey the way we started is Devin, Ann, and I each kind of, we, we created our notes. We, we, we profiled all the barrel uh, selections that we got. Now, mind you, this is, you know, mid COVID. So all of this is virtual. Everything we got, we got duplicate samples across, you know, like we, we would love to go be in person, but obviously like it was just not an option for us. So it was a logistical challenge. So we started with 
let's taste everything. Let's rank order. Let's create kind of the, the unique notes, barrel to barrel. And then step one was, all right, I would make a blend of my favorites across all the distilleries. Devin would make a blend of, of his favorites across the distilleries. And um, I think both Devin and I, if I remember correctly, really gravitated towards on, on, a, on an individual tasting note basis that, that more heavily smoked, right? It was a big identical flavor. So good. But as soon as we started blending it in, it just became so overpowering. And, and so through the blending process, we actually scaled back to back to back, you know, back. And then we ultimately went to the unsmoked and we didn't really like that. So we, we moved back and forth. I think that was really looking back at it, probably the hardest piece for us to kind of balance in there was the right amount of smoke, um, you know, of the, the Dell back samples. Um, I don't know, Devin, if you have any other comments about that process. No, I mean, you know, we're in the middle of the blend and we've got this concept that everybody that we've spoken to is so enthusiastic about. And I cannot, I cannot overstate the level of enthusiasm that we got for the idea across the board, whether it be the distilleries or like Imperial packaging where we get our, our bottles from, or even tappy, you know, where we got the, the toppers, um, everybody was super into the idea but here we are mid blend and now it's time to like put up or shut up you gotta actually do proof of concept here so you know i, I mean i think chase and i both really like the heavily smoked thing but also i was just kind of like if this is gonna work we've got to have it you know like it's got to be in there and the in in reality it just didn't it just didn't work with the 100 smoke so we ended up with um, something that's a little bit closer to the Dorado that they released themselves, which is a blend of uh, smoke distillate and classic distillate. Um, and yeah, I mean, when you're dealing with smoke, it's really, it's really tough. Like Chase said, a little bit goes a long way. So finding that right balance where I wanted the smoke to be there, but I also wanted it to kind of work as a frame in which the other flavors could live within. Um and I think we found the version that made that happen. Yeah. And I think one learning curve throughout this, right, is um, blending is a bit tough because like, like when you want to, you know, make something a bigger flavor profile or if you want to mute it a little bit, it's not just adding or detracting, you know, subtracting that that piece that you want to you want to increase or decrease. It's a little bit sometimes you need to decrease a little bit of the rye you know if it's too peppery maybe that's what's blocking out the, the, the mesquite smoke or or maybe the you know the mesquite smoke and and, and the rye are blocking out the, the sweetness and, and sometimes it can be quite counterintuitive right like if you're trying to get the the smoke to stand out it's not necessarily add more smoke it's maybe balance it in with a little bit more sweetness or downplay a little bit of that 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 peppery notes so there's not so many big clashing flavors back to back in the mid to late palate and I think I think through the iterative process that that I mean I don't even know how many different um, versions or blends that we created it was it was a ton we were running out of liquid at the end um, but what we realized is like you got to think well, well what is the end goal like how much smoke do we want in there what is that right balance and then what are all the different ways we can we can go about accomplishing that whether it's you know uh, dialing back some of the other flavors or or dialing up some of the smoky flavors and 
um, it really was a huge learning curve. And that, that smoke was such a big wild card for us to try and try and figure out. Um, and I, I think we nailed it, right? I think we found that, that sweet spot of you can taste it, you know, it's there, but it's also not going to like turn people away from this product. Right. It's that, that nice central balance of, of, um, the different kind of whiskeys we have in there. Absolutely. And it's funny that I know we're, we're spending a lot of time, oddly enough, talking about the smallest proportion in there, but instead, as you both said, the smoke goes a long way, so it can punch above its weight. Um, and it does have a really big impact. And I, with the, the time that we have left, I also want to talk a little bit more about, about that Lee Sinclair. Um, so I totally agree with you. The, the, the oats just have a, thing and i know we talked about the oats earlier so i'll let the oat beer bourbon go um but the he <laughs> um i don't i've i've learned i don't stay salty about fomo for too long at this point because i know there's just more whiskey than anybody could drink so i'll get over it um but one of the things uh that came out from <clears throat> from uh devin your interview with when you went on with alan's instagram was that it wasn't a classic lee sinclair that uh, you ended up going with it was a 64 gallon Bordeaux barrel instead so that was the one component that I realized after the fact that like I can try the classic Lee Sinclair and I've got a barrel pick of it from Spirits of French Lick but I don't have the one from that was aged in a Bordeaux barrel so uh, when I was tasting the whiskey and writing out my notes there was a very clear as much as there was the stone fruits which you mentioned, both mentioned earlier, there was also a um, more vinous quality as well. A little bit of that wine, and maybe it was just a touch of the Bordeaux in there, um, which I know is kind of a part of a part of a part. So call it what it is. But I did kind of have that come across as a little bit different in there and it added a richness and a, an unctuous undertone to it as well. So uh, did when you were uh, blending... I know he said Sarah's French like sent you the most samples. Uh, what led you to choosing this Bordeaux barrel, Lee Sinclair versus a classic one? Well, I think important important to note that we had no idea that it was a Bordeaux barrel. He didn't tell okay. us that. We did. <laughs> I mean, I guess like you know, in you know, in retrospect, a little bit of like. Uh, reverse you know engineering you can see that it's a 64 gallon barrel on the bot like written on the bottle so that's obviously not a, like a 53 so there's something right. else going on there um but i don't i mean he didn't tell us um laurelin from spirits of french french like didn't tell us uh like i said it was written there the 64 gallons is written there on the sample but um, probably as distracted as we were by just the um, immense task that was in front of us. I had no idea. We had no idea. And well, one thing I'll say about the, the spirits of French Lick, and, and I, I don't know if it was just Alan kind of being this, the alchemist that he is and, and, and wanting to just throw a bunch of curveballs, um, but it was the one that right out the gates, there was the least consensus right? Between Ann, Devin, and, and myself. 
which meant that like as we're, we're trying to go through all the variations of like my number one you know watershed with devon's number one number two you know spirits like so on and so forth trying to trying to create logic to the whole blending process like it created maybe the most chaos in terms of how many iterations we need to go after because like the range was was wildly different um for for their products and it was all so good but but um i think what we ultimately came down to is spirits of french lick plays such an important role of tying everything together it, it, in my mind right like the watershed is that 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 really relatable front end anchor uh, of a bourbon obviously the the um, wiggle monongahela rye is that that mid note that kind of every piece in it and you end in my opinion with, with the, the smoke in the back end but Devin talks about spirits of french lick as like the texture that runs through it you know it's this kind of like ambiguous middle ground that is both sweet and kind of odd and interesting and unexpected in a lot of ways that 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 brings you kind of across the pieces and i think once we we settled on you know i, I think that might have been the last barrel we really settled on but once we settled on on the, that particular barrel pick as the one it almost felt like you know the you know the linchpin right the, the stuff that, that that made everything else kind of click into place and um, yeah, I, I don't know if I can explain it more, more than that. Cause like Devin said, we didn't know what it was going into it. So we couldn't rationalize our thought process. It really was just sensory. I mean, it's okay. I think that might even work in your favor in this case. You know, I know we, we've talked a lot about intentionality and knowing the context, but in this case, it sounds like not knowing the context may have worked even better to just be like, what's the best thing that's going to taste the best in this blend. And I absolutely would not put it past Alan to, to throw you like, you know, six, if you threw you five samples, it would be, you know, four regulars and one way out there because he would totally do that. Yeah. I think it was like four and two or something. I think there was two wild cards in there. We chose, I think one of the wild cards, um, you know, I think intentionality is really important because like, I know, I know we talked about it a bunch, but like there was so much intention into, who we selected to participate in this and also like the relationships we cultivated going in, right. Which is going to influence what barrels they send us and how, you know, the concept of the project itself, what they think might be a good addition. Like you, you can plan it out and you, you, you can, you can make it as logical or rational as possible. But like at the end of the day, um, whiskey is an art, right? It's, it's something we do for emotion. It, it's something that appeals to maybe, not exclusively the logical side of our brain. And I, I do kind of like this. You can be so intentional, so planned, so regimented up to a point. And at some point you got to kind of take your hands off the wheel and say, all right, we're going to put a blindfold on and, and we're going to go figure out what is the best option that's in there. And it's going to go purely off instinct. And we're going to try, we're going to try again. And we're going to keep making new blends or keep resampling the same blend over and over and revisiting it. And, it is quite an exhaustive process. Um, this kind of, I don't know, um, less logical, less structured piece of it all. But I, I, I think you need to balance the art and science of this process just because that's the nature of whiskey. I think you put it pretty damn well, Devin. I don't know if uh, you got anything to add to that, but that was. That was Chase. I'll let, you know. Chase always always is the one that hits hard with the with the great sweepingly moving statements. So um, I'll leave it there with him. 
He's leaning into that uh, the Jersey power right there. <laughs> it's, it's the marketing Great and storytelling, thing. right? If you don't know the answer, yeah. just bullshit your way through it in a kind of an evocative way. I got to tell you, it's the same damn thing in fundraising too. So I know exactly what you mean. <laughs> Truly do. Well, guys, thank you so much for taking the time tonight to talk about, uh, you know, the platform, the website, how that was built, how Borrow Page came about. Um, I know you've got uh, a little more left of volume one. I'm going to try to grab one myself. Uh, and that the list for volume two is evolving, but I know you guys are thinking about it already. So there will be a volume two for this. And yes. I'm very excited to see what yes. that's going to be as well. Um, yeah. And the, the, the quick plug on that, not to interrupt, right? The, the goal of Borrow Page is to be entirely different, you know, uh, expression over expression, right? We want to tell a totally different story. We want to feature totally different distilleries. Um, you know, it probably will, it may not even be four distilleries. It may not be a bourbon, right? We, we don't necessarily, what the, it's not a mold we're trying to adhere to. It, it's all about, you know, we want to feature and, and help elevate the profile that the people we think are doing great work and we want to release a great product that'll help in that, you know, to that end, right? Is to, to introduce more people to their product and, and appreciate what they're doing. Perfect. And I think it's getting a little, you know, return of the king here, but um, <laughs> we've got a couple of couple of endings, but they're all really good endings. So it's perfect for me. Uh, so guys, um, hang on with me for a minute after we finish recording, just to close out a few things. But in the meantime, where can people find American Mash and Grain and Borrow Page? Uh, the same place. So come to our website, which is mashandgrain.com. So that's mash, the letter N grain.com you can also follow us at mash and grain on pretty much every social platform um you know borrowed page is exclusively sold on our website as of right now it's available in 40 states across the country it's retailing at 75 dollars a bottle uh which means that with tax and shipping you're going to be able to get this whiskey for uh under 100 bucks which is what we were trying to to aim for um you know just over 700 bottles were produced and like chase said as sad as it makes me to say, honestly, the more and more I drink it, uh, we will never recreate this specific whiskey again. Once volume one is gone, it's gone. Volume two is going to come out sometime next year. Completely different distilleries, completely different whiskeys, um, a very different expression. So um, get it while you can. We hope you like it. Check out the articles um, and give us a follow. Um, you know, whiskey's about stories and we like to tell them. So check us out. And lastly, final plug from, from the sales guy. Uh, if you buy four or more bottles, you get free shipping. So uh, don't be afraid to buy in bulk. <laughs> Definitely. Awesome, guys. Well, thank you so much. I'll put all the uh, links that you mentioned in the show notes to the website, to social media, um, to the uh, buying page as well. Um, I'm glad to see New York is one of those 40 states, so no problem there. And... With that, we'll close out another episode of the Whiskey Ring Podcast. Make sure to follow, subscribe, uh, rate, and review on any podcast app of choice. Uh, if I'm not on one, uh, first off, not sure how you're listening to me, but if I'm not on one and you really want me to be, just let me know. And uh, I will see you next week. <laughs>